as I stand here, I mean, you've heard of the term preaching to the choir, but I feel like when I'm standing here, I'm preaching away from the choir. But um, just know that you're thought of and included. Um, I know you're glad I'm not going to tell another lame knock-knock joke. Um, So we'll just move into the scripture. Um, Today, um, our our scripture lesson from Luke is uh, about prayer. You know, I don't have to tell you, there is a great yearning for spiritual connection in our country and in our world. A lot of uh, religious sociologists have written extensively about this, talking about the role of technology and the role of kind of a rational secularism and a sense of purposelessness and so forth that give rise to a a real seeking for connection with something greater than ourselves. There's also no shortage of reflection on the meaning of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Probably one of the most recognized religious acts uh, of any religion uh, and maybe one of the most misunderstood. So not an expert on these things, to be sure, but wanting to uh, reflect together on the meaning of of Jesus' teaching, uh, let us listen now for the word of God. It comes to us from the 11th chapter of Luke. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring to us the time of trial. And then Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend And you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Don't bother me, the door is already locked, my children are with me in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence or his shamelessness, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. And so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And everyone who knocks The door will be open. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Sheila was a junior at Coral Gables High School. Uh, She occasionally came to uh, the Young Life meetings that we had there at Coral Gables. I didn't really know her very well. Uh, she wasn't the kind of person that you that uh, kind of gravitated to. Uh, she 
in the social currency of high school. Uh, she didn't really have much to spend. Uh, not really cool, not, not uh, super attractive, didn't have a great athletic ability. Uh, in fact, kind of the opposite of those things. And so uh, it was surprising one day when I was, it was a, it was a weekday, and I was at a park, and I'm walking through the park, and there is Sheila, right there uh, late morning when she should have been at school. And so uh, she was surprised to see me. Uh, we exchanged uh, some, some conversation. Uh, I didn't want her to, to feel guilty about skipping school, but I also was concerned about why she might be here. And after a couple of minutes, she said to me, I want to be a Christian. Can you help me be a Christian? Now, for somebody who's in the business of evangelism, as I was working for Young Life with high school kids, you know, that's kind of like uh, a car salesman being there on the lot and somebody walking into the showroom and saying, I want to buy a fully loaded, brand new luxury sedan right now. I mean, you just don't get that very often, and it's pretty exciting. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I thought, wow, this must be the way Billy Graham feels all the time or something. Uh, but, but then I kind of paused as I was talking with Sheila because I wondered about what was going on with her. What were her motivations? Did she really understand what she was doing? I knew she longed to be included by her peers, to be valued, loved. And I wondered if this was a way of reaching out to God or to me or to just anyone for some sense of inclusion. That morning we did pray together. And I must say, I don't know if it made a difference in her life, but I regret that I didn't really have the words to explain to her that there was no prayer, no formula, no spiritual transaction that could get God to love her any more than God already did. She was already God's dearly beloved. And if she could just understand that God didn't want anything of her, but only for her. The disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, teach us to pray. Like the other rabbis, all the, all the big rabbis, they had their own prayer style, their own, their own sort of special prayer. And the, their, their disciples were known by how they did it. And so they wanted Jesus to give them sort of a special prayer so they could have an identifying feature in their club you know, and in the long history of Jewish praying, there is this tradition of, of calling out to God when you're in trouble and saying, hey, God, 
Not only do I need help, but guess what? Your name is on the line. Your reputation is at stake. If I go down the tubes, you're going to look like a schmuck because you promised to uphold us and to make us prosperous. And so God, for your own namesake, you need to come through. It's this idea of saving God's own reputation. As if connecting with the sacred is some sort of difficult negotiation in, with one who doesn't really want to be bothered with us. And so, uh, uh, Jesus, please teach us to pray. Jesus offers no special words, no lists of do's and don'ts that would help them connect with divine love. No secret prayer like a prayer of Jabez or some other kind of special phrasing. Just a simple prayer affirming the deep unity of heaven and earth. This place where God's dream can happen, where all have enough to eat, where those who are indebted are forgiven, where sins are wiped away, where the reality of evil is acknowledged, but yet we do not trust any name other than the name that we hallow in our prayer. It's not a list of requests for the self, but rather a vision of life together that God wants for us. And then Jesus tells a little story, a story that uses the social expectations of the village in the story. He says, one night about midnight, a friend comes to his neighbor and asks for help. And of course, these are one-room homes, and so the neighbor is asleep in the same room with all of his kids, maybe all sharing the same big bed. And so he, he, it's just incredibly inconvenient. The neighbor that's knocked on the door has probably weighed, what do I do? I'm caught between two things. I have to be hospitable to my, this suddenly arriving guest at night, and yet I don't have anything to give him, and yet I don't want to wake up my neighbor but the duty of hospitality outweighed the duty of inconveniencing the neighbor. And so he knocks on the door, and the, the neighbor doesn't want to be bothered. And yet to avoid the opprobrium or the reproach of the community, which, which clearly would stand on the side of getting up and sharing and enabling the hospitality, in order to avoid that reproach, the man would get up. Jesus, it's, it's one long question. Who among you would act like that man who didn't want to get up? Of course the answer is nobody would do that. Everyone would get up out of bed no matter how inconvenient it was. I think the year was 1993. I was sitting on the floor in my house just a few blocks from here and uh, my kids were little. It was Christmas Eve, 
They were upstairs in bed, and I was doing what all fathers must do on Christmas Eve, try to put together toys. And I'm wrestling with all these instructions, these complicated, indecipherable instructions for ever more complicated toys. And literally at midnight, there's this hard knock on our front door and this shouting, this woman yelling, please help. I was so scared. I, I got up. Peggy looked at me. We looked at each other. We didn't know what to do. I went to the door and looked through the windows, and there was a, a neighbor of ours named Debbie. Debbie lived across the street and about three houses down. Uh, she rented a part, a, a part of a house, lived with a boyfriend. I really didn't know Debbie hardly at all. I just knew her name. And I suspected that her and her boyfriend were involved in probably some drug activity as were. Uh, it wasn't uncommon in our neighborhood back then. And I was a little scared. In fact, I was quite scared. I didn't know what to do. Here is this desperate woman with fear in her voice, her eyes just wide as saucers saying, help, help. What would I do? She said, call 911, which I did. But I didn't open the door. I didn't know what was going on. But I called the police, and soon they came and helped them settle their domestic disturbance. At least I think so. You know, even our attempts to help and our willingness to give assistance often come with mixed motives, don't they? I read about a study of nurses and their attitudes toward call buttons. And this study found that about, uh, well, first of all, that nurses on average in this study received about six to seven calls per hour. So for a 12-hour shift, that's approximately 75 calls. Understandable, you'd get tired of that. And so the study examined their attitudes and they found that about that nurses felt that about 50% of the calls were unnecessary, were, were an interruption from more important work. Well, being married to a nurse, I, I mean, I could have told them that uh, from my own experience, but... At any rate, uh, we, we sometimes think that our praying is like hitting a call button and trying to get the attention of somebody who's busy doing something more important. It's like a knock on a door where we come to a God in times of desperate need after thinking of all the other alternatives or trying many other approaches, sometimes for years, we come in prayer, often apologetically, as if God might really not be very pleased to hear from us. We come with a formality or with reservation, as if the divine presence is not with us at every moment. The Jesus prayer 
is an intimate prayer. Our Father. Jesus called God Abba, Daddy, or if you prefer, Mommy. One of these days, my grandson Andrew will, among his first words, say the word Pop. And it will immediately transform our relationship. For when we say our Father, we are erasing whatever distance might be there. That intimacy can transform and heal Sheila and can heal and transform us. It affirms what Jesus already knew that God does not want of us, but only for us. Martin Luther King said, the world is equally balanced between good and evil, and your next act will tip the scales. And so perhaps in these days, in this world, Our next act should be to learn to pray an intercessory prayer for the world to such a large God. To pray on behalf of the world for its bread of justice, for its release of indebtedness, for its forgiveness of sins, and for its deliverance from evil. For as Dr. King also said, we must learn to live together as neighbors or perish together as fools.